Each emotional system is hierarchically arranged throughout much of the brain, interacting with more evolved cognitive structures in the higher reaches and specific physiological and motor outputs at lower levels. And on today's episode, we'll explain exactly what that means. I want to welcome you back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, where we cover the science-based evidence behind social and emotional learning for schools and emotional intelligence training in the workplace with tools, ideas, and strategies we can all use for immediate results with our brain in mind. I'm Andrea Samadhi, an author and an educator with a passion for learning, specifically on the topics of health, well-being, and productivity, and launched this podcast to share how important an understanding of our brain is for everyday life and results. On today's episode number 282, we'll be speaking with an important guest who reached out to me shortly after we released episode 270 with Lucy Biven, who co-authored The Archaeology of Mind with Jack Pangsep. She let me know she was a couples therapist, an educator, and an author with a new book coming out next month and was amazed to see our episode with Lucy as she cites the archaeology of mind on nearly every page of her new book, The Power Couple Formula, Unlock the Power of Your Instincts and Transform Your Relationship. She even mentioned that a colleague of Dr. Pangsep, Dr. Doug Watt, was currently reviewing her manuscript to offer his guidance on the subject. When this email came through, I was taking a short break from interviews. I was gathering my bearings with a tight schedule. But when I saw her email, I knew I had to learn more about her new book, The Power Couple Formula, and how she related Pangsep's core emotions to what she was doing. We met briefly to chat, and I've got to say that we could have recorded that conversation. She spoke eloquently about her background as a therapist and the history of our emotions. I couldn't take notes fast enough, but I saw that not only does our next guest understand Jack Pansep's work that many find to be difficult, but she could explain it in a way that made sense to me with clear examples for each of the core emotions. Just a bit about Gabrielle. Gabrielle Yusatinsky is the founder and director of Power Couples Education. She's an internationally renowned therapist, speaker, and educator, and is the author of the forthcoming book, The Power Couple Formula, which is scheduled for release next month. She's the originator of groundbreaking online programs that could help couples build relationships based on safety and trust, and offers professional training programs for therapists in this power couple method. Her work is regularly featured in publications like CNN, USA Today, Cosmopolitan, Parents Magazine, Counseling Today, and Women's Health. For over a decade, she's helped thousands of couples. Her clinical work has earned her numerous awards, including the USA Prestige Award for Couples Counseling Service of the Year, the Best of Boulder Award for Couples and Marriage Counseling, and the Top 10 Best Marriage Counselors of Boulder, Colorado Award. Gabrielle is a graduate of McGill University and also specializes in the treatment of traumatized children and their families. So today we'll meet Gabrielle Yusatinsky and learn how Jack Pangsep's work 
plays out in our most personal relationships with tools we can all use and apply right away. Let's meet Gabrielle Uzatinsky. Welcome, Gabrielle. It's incredible to see you again. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast to share your knowledge on what many of us would consider a topic that's not the easiest to explain because we're all still trying to figure out and understand this topic of our emotions. Thank you so much for being here today. You're welcome. It's my absolute pleasure. I'm so glad that we connected. I was very uh, excited to find out about your podcast and what you do. So great. Well, thank you. I was thrilled to see your note to me and especially the connection with Lucy Biven. And them is all I had to look at was, you know, what you've created here. So I just want to thank you so much. I love learning and then making connections, especially with past episodes. Um, and, and your topic is going to make us all think. So thanks for being here. Yes, absolutely. Well, let's get right into this. I wanted to, before we go into the questions on your book, The Power Couple Formula, and I want to find out why did you write this book? And then why did you focus on the work of Dr. Panksepp? Yeah, well, um, I wrote this book because people are in a lot of pain about their relationships. Um, More and more pain, I think, uh, as the pace of modern life continues to speed up. And, um, And there's a lot of, you could say, disinformation out there about relationships. And it's very hard for people to know where to turn to get really sound advice and a lot of really different ideas about how to be in relationship, um, what relationships are for and how couples should behave and what they should expect. And so I wanted to provide a, a really clear roadmap for couples so that they could get back to really the basics, like what is most important, most foundational to being in relationship, and specifically around um, human needs, the human need for love, for care, for connection, for protection. Um, And understanding that is, uh, those are needs that go back uh, very, very far in our evolutionary history. They didn't start with us, right? And so the whole point of the book was, you know, to really help people get a clear understanding to help couples find each other again and um, really looking at the the roots of how humans and mammals have evolved over a hundred million years. I've been a couples therapist for nearly 15 years um, in private practice uh, in the Boulder, Denver, Colorado area. So I've had a lot of experience seeing what works and what doesn't. And um, I wanted to uh, share my knowledge. And when I came across the work of Dr. Jak Panksepp, um, who is an Estonian-American neuroscientist who's passed now, um, I just felt like the, the work that he brought forward was so critical for couples to understand, to help them with their relationships. And yet nobody was talking about it. Nobody's really that familiar with his work in general in the world at large. Um, I certainly was not trained in his work as a therapist. His name was kind of unknown in the, in the, to most therapists. But um, the understanding of the fact that we have this 
these these action systems, what he called action systems, um, or what we could also refer to more colloquially as instincts, um, and that that we have these instincts that are like hardwired into our brain, into our the human nervous system. Um, and they they evolved over a very long period of time. So and instincts aren't just about like staying warm or finding food. They're also um, instincts that underlie kind of drive not only the way we think, but especially the way we feel. And that's really what kind of Hanksep's unique contribution here was really getting to the very root core of our emotional life. Um, that it turns out we share with um, many other animals. And these instincts are incredibly old. They, they predate our life as, he, as humans. They're kind of almost like these, these forces that, that are unconscious and they drive us to behave in certain ways. And especially in our relationship, you know, they, they drive our, our behavior in relationship to other human beings and specifically in relationship to our partners. Um, so these, these incredible kind of findings that he brought forth um, have huge application for us to really get back to that basic kind of sense of how do we bond with other human beings and what are the steps we need to take in order to create really satisfying, enduring relationships. So there was a lot there that you said that really made me think back to let, like, let's just start with not a lot of people know about Dr. Panksepp's work. And when I first started to study neuroscience and I was doing this certification with a researcher, it was the first part of his course. It was let's, let's read archeology span of mind. And then there, there was Panksepp's core emotions and I printed them out and I put them on my desk and I'm learning them, but I couldn't explain them to you. And then here comes, you know, Lucy Biven along on the podcast and, and she's talking about these core emotions and I still look at them and I can't explain them like you did when we first talked, when we first were trying to figure this out, you started explaining these emotions and how Dr. Panksepp mapped them out in the brain. Well, I saw that brain picture, but I didn't still understand it. Can you perhaps walk us through the seven core emotions? I put a chart in the show notes that that labels them. I know the words like seeking, rage, fear, panic, play, lust, and care. I get the words. I have them on my desk. I'm looking at them. So what's next? In his chart, he has mammalian prototype affective states. Does that mean how these emotions showed up in the rats you were studying? I like, here's where I get lost. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Well, um, yes. Yeah. So he did, Panksepp did a lot of his research on um, lab rats, but also other animals as well. And really looking at um, these deep subcortical brain circuits. Uh, so, you know, we, we have these kind of, roughly speaking, our brain is kind of, uh, the higher regions of the brain have to do more with our formal cognitive, linear, linguistic kind of functions, our and our what we're consciously aware of, you know. And then we have these kind of deeper uh, regions of the brain that go all the way down into the brainstem that um, 
concept discovered have to do with our raw emotions. And these raw emotions are things that we share with, um, with mammals, really all mammals, um, and also with birds. Uh, and, and even some of these emotions go back even before the arrival of the, the mammalian kingdom on earth, you know, back into even earlier forms of life. So we share a lot of these, the kind of the, the, the prototypical substrates of emotion, you could say, even with, with lizards and stingrays and alligators, you know, it's kind of amazing, really. And so when we're talking about like animals having emotions, I mean, I think if you're, if you're a dog owner or a cat owner, um, you probably like, nobody would argue, right? That we know that animals have emotions, but if you, if you live with animals, but the fact is that science has been loath to accept that. Um, it, even today, you know, it's, it's kind of still a, a, a fringe thought in the mainstream scientific community to sit, to think that animals experience, um, that they experience joy or grief or, um, or that animals play, you know, even though we can we can see very clearly that they exhibit many of the same um, behaviors that humans do and the same parts of the brain are lighting up when they're exhibiting those behaviors. So if I'm looking at the chart that is all over the place that we have to study, it's got the seven basic emotion yeah. systems. Then the second okay. one is the mammalian prototype affective states. Like I yeah. look at that and I think, what does that mean? Does that mean that's how he saw these emotions play out in animals? And then the third column is highly cognized human variants. Okay. What does that mean? Does that mean that's how it shows up in humans? How, how do I decipher his chart here? Right. Um, so maybe if I if I just give a little bit of a broader picture of what we're talking about when we're talking about like these these basic emotions as organisms, all organisms need to interact with their environment in order to survive. And, you know, like even if you think about an amoeba, an amoeba needs to move out into the world to seek food, you know, and, and as it does that, it encounters um, danger and it has to protect itself. And, and how does it do that? Well, it does that by, you know, mounting some sort of defensive response, right? And it, if it, if the, you know, the, the foe is too great, it's going to retract in fear. And so if we, if we look at sort of just the basic movement of life, there are all these kinds of, of energies, you could say, that move through life. The, the, um, action of going out into the world to seek resources to seek food to seek shelter um and then the the way we interact with uh things that can hurt us like we get afraid when when something could overpower us or kill us and we have to defend ourselves so we need some kind of like uh, a rage response to protect our resources right so even if we just look at those those three um core emotions seeking fear and rage um, those things we can trace those back. Like when we're talking about prototypical, that that first category, you're talking about prototypical emotion or whatever he wrote there. We can trace that back to even very primitive life forms, right? And so, um, right from the amoeba on up to us, like we could say that all all animals um, have some kind of all organisms have these kind of movements. Um, and they they developed in a sort of sequential order. So 
like um, you could say first were these kind of more base or more primitive emotions like seeking, fear, rage. And then we, as, as life started to kind of evolve on earth, it, they started to move into more, more evolved kinds of emotions. So what did Dr. Pansek discover about where exactly our emotions reside in the brain? One of the most incredible things that Pansek discovered was that uh, in the, this, the emotions really reside at the very deepest level of our brain in terms of where these kind of um, neural, the neural mechanisms that that are associated with these emotions really reside in the deep brain at the level of what we call the brain stem, which traditionally we thought of as um, only responsible for physiological functions like pain, hunger, thirst, you know, regulating your heart rate, your breathing. That's sort of classically what we think of as, as what the brain stem is all about. Um, and one of the revolutionary findings of Pengsup was that actually, no, emotions uh, emerge from this, this very, very deep um, part of the brain and specifically what he is called the PAG, referred to as the PAG, P-A-G, or otherwise known as the periaqueductal gray region of the um, brainstem, which is a small jelly bean shaped um, uh, brain structure that's kind of really right deep in the, in the very center of your brain. And so broadly speaking, like all of the, the core emotions arise from that very deep center. And um, before Pankset, nobody really thought about emotion that way. You know, all of us therapists were trained to think, well, you know, the brainstem is, is kind of for physiological functions. And then the, the midbrain, what we called the limbic brain, right, or emotional brain, which was the amygdala and, and the, the hypothalamus pituitary um, adrenal access, sort of these midbrain structures were where we kind of saw uh, what we call emotion arising, right? So, and then the, the neocortex being the big cauliflower shaped part of the brain at the top was really responsible for formal cognitive thought and all of that. So that was sort of classically how we thought about the brain, but Panksup came along and changed all that and said, actually, no, emotion is the seat of consciousness itself. Because when you take the PAG, that little jelly bean structure, out of the brain, you lose consciousness. And if you stimulate the PAG directly in various ways, <laughs> like you can produce very strong emotional responses in people and in animals. Okay. So um, that in itself was, was a game changer. Um, one of the reasons this is so important for people to understand, like why, why does this matter? It matters because when we start to understand that like a lot of the responses that get us into trouble in our life, in our relationships, at work, with our coworkers, with our family, at school, um, are being driven by these, these very deep forces that have been around for a very long time that are essentially designed to um, ensure that we survive, uh, lead us toward life-giving experiences and away from dangerous or deadly experiences. And that's really how we're all kind of wired, right? And so when we have this understanding of, of just how 
how far back these instincts actually go and that fundamentally they're there to help us. They're, they're, they're there to make sure that we, we thrive and that we, we um, realize everything that we can be. Um, it, it starts to change the way people think about their problems. Because when we understand the rage response, when we understand the fear response, we understand lust, and then we understand, you know, um, that we all have a, we're all wired to to care for others, right? And and to play with others, we start to appreciate um, the the problems that we run into in a whole new way. Now uh, we no longer have to blame ourselves and other people so much for acting the way they do. Um, it's, it's, you know, the clinical term, as we say, it depathologizes the situation, right? Instead of seeing all these problems as a pathology, like as a problem that needs to be fixed when you have a kid acting out at school or a couple getting into an argument, we can start to take a deeper look at what's really going on under the hood, so to speak, and, and have like an appreciation for that. And what I find is that when, when people start to understand how these action systems work, they develop more compassion for each other, you know, um, and then it, it also makes it clear kind of what we need to do in terms of helping people behave better, you could say, in social situations, because we, we can really look at what is the sort of underlying thrust, like the underlying motivational force that's trying to express itself here um, and then find a more adaptive way of helping that that force to um to be expressed that makes complete sense and you know it just echoes back to an episode that i recently did that's not released yet it's gonna come out uh next weekend but uh we were talking about attachment theory and how sometimes when we get stressed about something it's oftentimes things that happened to us years ago and it has nothing to do with the thing that's happening in the moment and you know you think it's the thing or the person that's you know making you respond a certain way but so that just kind of brings me to my next question so can you orient us to what therapists were taught about our emotions and maybe even this whole attachment theory and how it's important to completely deactivate the system in intimate relationships so we don't blow up and, and get mad at the person. It's actually understanding something else. Can you explain? Yes, yes, sure. Well, um, in terms of what, what therapists are taught, you know, I, I'd say that attachment theory has come into vogue like in the last 20 years, um, probably. Uh, the and and the the basic idea behind attachment theory, or what we would really call attachment science now, because it's not really no longer a theory. I think we have enough science behind it to say that this is a a very um, realistic way of looking at the way humans bond with the special people in their lives. And in in early childhood, or that we would say that those special people are your parents, right? When you're a child, but when you, when you grow up and you become an adult, those special people are your, um, your intimate partner. That is the, the closest relationship uh, that people tend to have. And so um, what we see is that uh, children um, develop 
they, they, they organize their behavior into these predictable patterns of behavior in relation to their parents and caregivers that essentially uh, is designed to maximize the caregiver's availability and responsivity. So a child will organize how they behave. Let's say if you grow up in a family where you don't get a lot of physical contact, it's kind of a low contact family, for instance, um, children will, will learn to decrease their signal, you could say, like they, they won't signal, you know, for a hug, or they won't go to a parent um, when they're in distress, because they learned that those types of behaviors in that family don't cut it. Nobody's going to respond to that. They might be shamed if they tried to do that, or even punished. And so they would learn to naturally decrease the signal, right, so to speak, and, and um, shut down those basic needs for connection. People form what we call relationship blueprints uh, or attachment styles in relation to their early uh, to their parents when they're when they're young. And we're really looking at the window of zero to 12 years old. OK, when these blueprints are formed and um, they bring this blueprint of how to behave in a relationship with them when they become an adult, they carry that with them into their adult intimate relationships. This blueprint really has to do with two things. It has to do with your own self-esteem and it has to do with what you expect from the world in terms of how the world is going to interact with you. So it's kind of like a script that we map onto our relationships with other people. Um, it, it, that, that blueprint tells us like, what are we going to be afraid of? You know, uh, what should we, are, are, what are people, are people going to treat us well? Or um, when we get into a conflict, how should we react? You know, so it's it's like a script that that kind of informs the way we do relationships. And if that that blueprint is insecure in terms of how it works, it's going to create a lot of problems for adults. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very important that couples specifically understand how that blueprint works so that they can they they understand how they tend to get into trouble with their partner and then and then how to work together um, collaboratively to make different choices. So how do we know which attachment style we are without just guessing? I, I think I saw an assessment in your book. Was there Yeah. One? Yeah, there's a there's an attachment style inventory, you know, a assessment quiz, I guess you could say, um, to help people determine their attachment style. Um, and it's it's helpful to um, to take quizzes and stuff like that. I think it's a lot of times mis people mistype themselves, right. so it's not it's not as easy <laughs> as as you might think. And also because we don't see ourselves clearly ever, right? Totally. And so um, it's helpful to also work together with your partner to determine your attachment style because invariably they understand you a lot more deeply in certain ways than you understand yourself. They probably see you. Um, you know, your behavior, a lot of times the partner sees, you know, the other person's behavior much more realistically um, than we see our own, our own behavior. So it's helpful to, to kind of, if you are, um, well, with my book, for instance, it is really written for couples to work together through the book. You can also use my book as, as a, a single, if you're, you know, you're wanting to um, do it better next time you're in a relationship 
Um, but, but definitely it's helpful to have a partner help you with that. Um, when I, when I looked at your book and you've got these, these, these core motions from Pangcepts throughout each of the chapters, then can you show me or explain how you used the chapters as a map with tools and resources? It, it's very systematic. So once I mm-hmm. finished reading it, I, I got the idea from each of the systems what you were doing, but just outline it for us here. Sure, sure. Well, um, so the, the book is really... Uh, designed to be very hands-on, very practical. It also ha- contains a lot of interesting science. Um, and and it's, it's, so it's very informative um, for people who are interested in that, but it also has a lot of very practical tools and concrete strategies that you can put into your life right away to make your relationship better. Um, but essentially we devote, I devote one to two chapters on each of the action systems. And um, we, Maybe I'll just also start by saying, you know, the book is called The Power Couple Formula. And I I use this term, the power couple, because it's, you know, my business is power couples counseling and my education, relationship education business is called power couples education. And the reason I like that term is because it's the idea of being a power couple is something that a lot of people want. You know, they they kind of say, wow, power couple, I want that, you know. But they have they don't really have a clear idea of what that means. And I think in our society, when we when we think of a power couple, we think of kind of like celebrity couples, right? You know, like George Clooney and Amal or people like that who, you know, it's it's often like celebrities in the media, dual income, glamorous, and um, and they seem to just have it all, right? At least on a on a material level. <laughs> but what what I did in this book was I, I took the term power couple and I kind of reinvented it to mean something new, which you could say is what we would call a securely connected couple. So a power couple is a securely connected couple. So how do we bring these kind of lessons from attachment theory and from um, the action systems into um, relationships so that we can really create a securely connected relationship because that is really where the power comes from in in a relationship is when couples really have each other's backs they really understand how each other works and they have capacities in place where they know how to do certain things in the relationship and those things have to do with things like how do we um, alleviate each other's suffering? How do we protect each other from any harmful elements, no matter where those come from? Um, how do we make each other feel totally wonderful, like every day? So these are what I mean by capacities that couples need to have in order to create a securely connected relationship. And so what the book does is it's essentially looking at each of the action systems, um, seeking, rage, fear, um, uh, um, lust, panic, grief, care, play, and, and looking at why power couples need to know about that action system, what it has to do with their relationship. And a lot of things we've never probably couples have never or people have just never really thought about. Like, you know, a lot of people have never realize that play is is a critical ingredient in relationships like it's absolutely necessary that couples know how to play with each other and that they play often right 
Um, yeah. And then, and then rage, you know, we have to look at what, what's happening in the relationship in terms of conflict. How do we do conflict? Um, are we letting it escalate and get to the point that people are actually raging? Or are, are we learning how to keep our arguments within what we call the window of tolerance, um, which is Dan Siegel's term. I know you've had him on the show to, so that the, so that people aren't really getting hurt when they're fighting. Right. So we're, we're looking at how, um, what each of these action systems have to do with creating a satisfying, enduring relationship. Um, people get the brain science behind each of the action systems. Um, and that's what we call the hardware of, of the act. So the hardware of seeking, the hardware of rage, the hardware of lust, really understanding like what are those um, those those brain structures that are involved, what are the chemical functions that are involved in, in producing all of these kinds of emotions? And then we look at the software of each of, of the, the action systems. So we have the hardware and the software. And the software is the stuff that is our learning that informs how the action systems function. So with attachment theory, that's really where that comes into play, right? Is that um, we all learn um, how to be in relationships based on those early experiences with our parents when we're little. And that learning is what actually structures the, the hardware, you could say. It tells us, like, is it is it okay to get angry, you know, when somebody hurts us? Like, is it... Um, is it okay to get turned on? You know, maybe it's not. Maybe we came from a family that was where people were shamed, you know, for where we were shamed for, for anything related to sex, you know? So, so that's kind of an example of how these action systems get um, structured by those early experiences and, and what we learn in our families. So that's the software aspect. And, and what we do, what I do in the book is I'm really looking at each of the attachment styles and how each style um, tends to get into problems with that particular action system. So um, for instance, if we talk about the care system, um, when we look at avoidant attachment, like a, avoidantly attached people come from families where there wasn't there weren't like these overt expressions of care in the family. That doesn't mean their parents didn't love them. All parents love their children very much. That doesn't mean they weren't fed or clothed or taken to school and so forth. But in terms of um, actions that are, are the kinds of what we'd call attachment care that children need, like um, spontaneous uh, expressions of affection for no reason at all, you know, boosting the child's self-esteem every day, um, relieving the child's distress. These are the kinds of care behaviors that um, avoidant children don't get in, in their families or at least don't get enough. And so because they didn't have those experiences when they were little, that's going to impact the functioning of their care system. Fast forward to adult intimate relationships, it's gonna be very difficult for them to express those kinds of behaviors in relation to their partner, right? Because nobody did it with them. And so we're, we're looking, we're breaking down each of these action systems, um, really looking at, okay, what are the challenges that each of the attachment styles are gonna get into with that, that action system? And then I'm giving them concrete tools to 
rectify the situation, right? So like, what do you need to do to what we call shift the baseline so that you don't have to let that early patterning create problems for you now with your partner? And then what can the partner do to help? Because that's the other important piece is we always want both partners working together on every problem that they might be experiencing in the relationship. We don't ever wanna just put it on one person. We want both people working together. So if your partner has a problem doing something, we don't wanna just say, go fix yourself, You know, go to therapy, right. fix yourself. Right. We want we want to know, like, well, how can the partner actually help them with that problem so it feels more balanced? And that's actually the way that real change happens in a relationship. And I would say not just in a couple, but even in business relationships or any kind of relationship is when both people work together, that they're they're collaborating. We're both in this. And I right. kind of try to make an application here with, yeah. with what you've just gone through, because I've never really thought about this, but it sticks out in my head because I know that growing up, my parents never said, I love you and showered us with all that sort of thing. My mom would say, we're raising you with healthy neglect. That's how, you know, she would call it. And then I would hear some of my friends, you know, on the phone with their parents and they'd hang up and they'd say, I love you so much. And I'm like, oh, that would be nice to how, to say I love you to my parents randomly. So now fast forward, I've got my own two girls and I notice my husband does this with the kids all the time. He grabs them and says, I love you. You're so special. And then spends like a good five minutes showering them with this love that, that I was like, oh, I wish I could do that. Like he does it. It's not natural for me. It's more natural for him to do it. Right. He was probably raised that way. So is that an application of what action system? Is that care? Because one of us didn't have it like the like, other did. Like um, you're asking about is is what the example of what your husband did would be like an, an expression of the care system, his care system, and also ex an expression of his play system, right? Because it sounds like he's also very playful with them and and um, and engaging in even what we call rough and tumble play, mm -hmm. um, which is a subject that I cover at length in the book, which is very important for children, um, rough and tumble play. And we can talk about that more. Um, but yes, absolutely. The the scenario you're describing is is very um, uh, illustrative of that that uh, it, how people grow up with different kinds of family cultures, and that informs the way they behave in their intimate relationship and also as parents. Absolutely. And one of the great things that you're also illustrating there is that um, you know sometimes your partner might have certain strengths that that you don't have because they came from a different kind of family and and that's a, a wonderful thing about being in relationship is that we can learn from each other and um and and uh you know kind of like fill in the gaps so to speak right like if, if you're not so good at something your partner might step in and and be really good at it and i'm sure there are things that you're very good at that maybe aren't as strong for him so that's one of the advantages it's like the two brains are better than one Kind of thing and being right? a power couple and, and and yeah working together on these things rather than because i don't think i could do what he does as good as he does it so i let him do his thing and then in my own way i do my thing but i'm like gosh i i think that's awesome how he's able to just 
shower them and they eat it up. They love every second of it, right? Because they're just listening and, and taking yes. it all in. They need that. And absolutely awesome. It comes from, I think him who's sometimes busy working and um, they don't, they get me all the time because I'm always around, but then they get this love from someone that's not around as much and in a way that I could never do it. That's how it makes for a strong couple, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting also because, well, first of all, I want to say, Andrea, I'm sure you're very loving and, and, and very warm with your children in other ways. Right. Um, because you just, you know, it's just obvious that that's the kind of person that you are. Um, but it is interesting also that, that it, part of this has to do with the difference between um, fathers and mothers and um, what they bring to the table, you know, as parents, and that they actually do bring different things to the table. That that mothers tend to be more kind of on the nurturing side. Fathers tend to be more um, challenging their children to kind of, you know, um, um, go out and, and, and rise to the occasion kind of thing. And But one of the things that, that fathers tend to do more of with children is rough and tumble play. And they tend to be the ones who wrestle with the children and throw them up in the air and, and, and grab them and do all the kinds of things you're talking about, right? And, um, and that's a, a wonderful kind of, these are evolutionary adaptations, obviously, right? Like parents had different kinds of roles that made sense um, when children needed, because children need to develop different capacities and they get, they need things from both parents, right? Got it. So, yeah. So, so if we were to look at the panic grief system, I picked that one because that's the first system that you talk about in your book. And and then I saw Dr. Bruce Perry's work um, cited in your book and we had him on the podcast. And, and I remember him talking about students in the classroom that were acting out that they could have been, I remember it was the first chapter of his book, What Happened to You. He talks about a kid that might've been reacting to his teacher's cologne, that it was triggering a memory of a stepfather that abused him. And then suddenly he's acting out in class. He's having this panic grief situation in the classroom that has nothing to do with the teacher. It just was a response, a trauma response. Mm. What should we know about um, panic and grief and how it shows up in our brain for, you know, those around us that, you know, mm -hmm. those sort of trigger systems that have nothing to do with the person you might be interacting with, but it might be triggered from the past? Mm -hmm. Well, let me just start by saying that. Um, so the, the panic grief system is a very important system when we're talking about intimate relationships. Um, because essentially what one of the incredible discoveries from Panksepp's research was that, um, you know, as one of the things that makes us uniquely mammal, I'll just say, first of all, is that we care for each other. And caring for each other, you know, if you think about like, um, baby animals and their mothers, some of the cutest things, you know, cutest YouTube videos you'll see are, are like um, animals caring for um, little animals and raising them. And that, that is really what made us unique as mammals and what allowed mammals to take over the planet because mammals were not the strongest. They, they couldn't fly away from danger. Um, they weren't um, big like dinosaurs, but nonetheless, they, they ended up, you know, um, 
ruling the planet essentially and and so the reason is because we care for each other and we because we care for each other in infancy because parents care for for their young their offspring during infancy it allows the brain a much longer period of growth than you get with you know say a turtle that's just like born on the beach and is like fending for itself from the moment it it hatches right and so that longer period of growth is what allows for the the con conveying the culture to the child and learning and tool making tools and making you know um relating to other people and learning about how the world works and so um because of this 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 centrality of, of care the care system um for mammals we have evolved to be exquisitely sensitive to how other people treat us and we needed to be because like if you think about you know a, a duck and a duckling wandering through the forest you know if that duckling gets separated from their mother even for a second they're going to be food for the next coyote that comes along right and so you know this this uh what panic grief is referring to is that we actually have this neural mechanism deep inside our brain that that will signal distress when we are disconnected from those we love and those who care for us that triggers a, an excruciating distress response in the brain and that is true for all humans and for uh mammals and birds so um because we we need connection on an evolutionary level we needed connection in order to survive um and the thing is that we we don't um lose that that panic grief response is is there with us through the lifespan even into adulthood when we feel disconnected from uh our 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 spouse um or our children or other people we love that will trigger a panic grief response in human beings so and it's not hard to sort of place that in your experience if you think about things like what happens when people break up you know and they can go into a fall into a deep depression or what happens when your partner says i'm not attracted to you anymore or um any any number of things or you you know you you had a fight with your partner and then suddenly you know and they go to work off to work and you can't reach them on the phone because you know they're 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 in a meeting and your heart starts racing and like oh are we okay you know so so anything that threatens that bond is going to trigger this kind of very deep um deep sense of panic now the reason it's called a panic grief response is because the the panic part is really uh evolutionarily speaking it's a it's an attempt to reestablish that connection so if a child gets lost in a grocery store they start screaming right that's the panic response <laughs> they're trying to get mom to you know trying to reestablish that connection where's mom right um but what happens if the parent doesn't come or what happens if you know you have a fight with your boyfriend and then you never see them again that panic is going to change into a grief response and the grief response is really this total kind of shutting down um this dampening of all, all of that intense energy of the panic as a way of trying to conserve energy 
Um, and probably because when you were, you know, if you were a little like chick or a little mammal screaming in the forest and mom doesn't come, well, you're going to start conserving energy, right? Because you don't want to attract the attention of predators and you also need to keep warm and things like that. So there's this kind of shutting down that happens. And what's interesting about the panic grief response is that, and this is kind of one of the sort of probably new insights that I bring forth in my book, is that the panic aspect of the panic grief response really correlates very well. It maps very well with anxious attachment and the grief response maps very well with avoidant attachment. Because what we see with anxious attachment is that a person's panic grief system is like overactivated. You know, um, they tend to be louder. They tend to be the ones who are the active complainers and, and be more emotionally dysregulated. But then when you look at the avoidantly attached people, they tend to be the ones who kind of look cool as cucumbers on the outside, but all of that stress has kind of been dampened down and they don't feel it, right? So, so we kind of see that the way panic and grief um, get expressed in people's relationship styles. So what about some tools then to act, to deactivate this panic grief in our relationships so that we don't have this conflict? I know with each of the systems, you have th this phenomenal section of some tools. There are lots of things to keep in mind there. The, the um, One of the most important ones is not doing anything in the relationship to threaten the relationship the existence of the relationship itself. Um, so it's it's not just what you do do to deactivate the panic grief. It's also what you don't do. <laughs> and one of the scariest things, I guess actually really the scariest thing in a relationship is when people get into problems and they start threatening to end the relationship. Um, you know, maybe we shouldn't stay together. Um, I, or just they get into a fight, I'm done with you, and they walk out, but they don't really mean it, right? And that's a huge problem because it's um, there is nothing scarier in a relationship than the threat of the relationship ending. And again, it's because intimate relationships, they replicate our early experiences of dependency on our parents when we were little. And that, so that sense of that, that survival quality to it, um, it doesn't go away. So we need to make sure that when we get into, when couples get into an argument, that they're finding other ways to fight that do not involve threatening to end their relationship. Um, and um, so part of it, but, but a, a really big part of deactivating panic grief um, has to do with how we, um, provide each other with these frequent expressions of affection, of warmth, um, of security, of praise, uh, gratitude, providing each other with these kinds of generating, creating this positive energy in the relationship every day. Because what a lot of couples, where, where they get into trouble is they don't, they don't do that and then naturally people are going to start feeling insecure with each other because we're we're so wired to protect ourselves from 
anything that could um, kill us, that if we're not receiving those types of positive messages and, and experiencing that positive energy with each other every day, our brains are naturally going to revert to a negativity bias. Mm-hmm. And so we have to generate that, that energy with each other. Um, and, and the problem couples get into very often is they don't do that. And then they start arguing and they think that their sole job is to kind of like resolve the argument when really there's a much larger context that's missing here. Like Dr. John Gottman discovered that, you know, it, couples need um, 20, it's, it was in conflict, it was, it was um, a very high number of positive interactions for every negative interaction, right? I think it's 20 to one, 20 positives to every one negative. And in regular interaction, it was five positives to every one negative. So if you think about that, like your conflicts need to be primarily positive. That's kind of a total, you know, mindset shift, right? I mean, how many of us are actually taking care of that, right? Um, I love seeing Gottman research in your book because uh, in all the research that I've done, um, pulling up people who have made an impact, Gottman comes up over and over again as the the one researcher that can predict whether a marriage is going to make it or fail based mm-hmm. on these certain criteria. Mm-hmm. So when I saw that, I thought, you know, all these things would have been so nice to know before you get married to someone like, hey, what's your attachment style? And, mm-hmm. and then you know that and you know how you're going to argue and stuff like that. You know, mm-hmm. all these things we don't know. Yes, and I would I I can't agree more with what you just said. It's very important that people get to know each other um, much more deeply than you know what's your favorite color and and you know where do you go to church and stuff like that. I mean, you know, uh, do people really take couples don't take enough time generally to really ask the questions that would allow for that kind of deeper knowledge of each other that couples need to have. Um, because when they don't have that knowledge, it actually makes the relationship feel scary, you know? Oh, totally. Right? It's kind of like you don't, yeah, yeah, you don't know me. You don't understand how I work. You don't know what to do with me when I'm really upset. You know, those types of situations are going to make the relationship feel very threatening. So, yeah. And, And as I was reading each one, I was thinking, you know, I was only wanting to look at the secure attachment solutions because I was thinking, what do you do if you're married to someone and they're insecure and everything is always like a big fight because that person is insecure in themselves and their attachment? What what do you do if every single conflict you have is with... Do, do you know what I'm saying? I'm thinking, how how would you... It, life is difficult when you're when you're navigating a relationship with someone that there's always conflict. I guess I'm trying to. Yeah, add. yeah. Well, I think that's what we a lot a lot of what I'm trying to unpack in this book, right? Um, and and part of one of the big insights in the book, really, um, which has to do we I talk about a lot in the chapter on the rage system, has to do with really understanding that there are reasons why people rage. You know, and and if we don't deal with those underlying reasons, then the rage is not going to go away. 
So you're, you're talking about, right, a situation where you have one person who just seems always upset and always angry and, and everything's a problem and nothing you do is right. Um, it's very easy to blame that person, you know, say, oh, that person's just so unreasonable and stuff. But, but part of what uh, the book is designed to do is, is to really help partners look at kind of like even process of elimination, like what could actually be going on in our relationship that could account for why that person is so angry. So in the book, I talk about the top five triggers that drive rage in relationship. And um, they are things like the need to right a wrong against you. So when you've been wronged in your relationship, um, that will trigger a, a rage response. Um, another thing that can trigger rage is when you are trying to stop your partner from engaging in a particular action, right? If they're having an affair, you might be raging because you're trying to stop them from engaging in that particular action. And um, another really important aspect is that can, can contribute to rage is the experience of social isolation. And many, many people feel very isolated in their relationships, even though their partner they feel very lonely and very isolated. They feel neglected. They don't connect anymore. And they feel like they're living uh, alone, set parallel lives. And that can also trigger rage. So these are very important like factors that couples need to consider to really understand when, when there's a lot of rage and a lot of anger, right? What about some now, tools? How, how would we work with that? trying to understand mm -hmm. why, how, how do we dig in to figure this yeah. out? One person's angry at something, you know, like, oh, this didn't go right today and starts unpacking a whole list of stuff. Like how, what are some tools for that? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think to broadly speaking, it's very important that couples not do anything in the relationship that triggers the rage or the fear systems. Rage and fear are the two, and panic grief naturally, are, are really the, the three biggies that need to be completely deactivated in the relationship. And on the rare occasion that people, partners might trigger one of those systems, it's important to repair that very quickly. Like Dr. Gottman says, the masters of relationship, the couples that he called the masters of relationship are those who repair often and well. So repair is a big part of um, managing the rage system because when, when we do get into problems with each other and, and we don't repair it, then those problems will have a very long, um, they, they will impact the relationship for a very long time to come right? Because the brain remembers, brain remembers. And it's part of that needing to keep myself safe so that I, I don't get into this problem ever again. I'm not going to forget that terrible argument we had, and it's going to impact every other interaction we have moving forward. So, so repair is critical. Um, but another thing is really seeking to understand each other's vulnerabilities and then understanding how to diffuse those vulnerabilities. Because the thing about rage is that it often is hiding much more vulnerable emotions, like um, fear, hurt, 
guilt, things like that, shame. And people will express rage because they don't, they don't feel that those deeper kind of more vulnerable feelings are really being addressed by their partner. And so they up the ante, right? So we got to really get to the bottom of what those vulnerabilities are, that couples have a responsibility to understand those things, and then move proactively to diffuse those things in each other. The most common example of this, really, when you have one partner who's very, very angry a lot of the time, um, is very often in relationships where um, that partner is experiencing emotional neglect from their partner. And that's really the social isolation phenomenon. Like they're in a relationship, but it's, it's as though they're just living parallel lives. And um, so very often you see that with avoidant and anxious pairings, where you have an, an avoidant partner who is not um, really making those relationship moves is not is not you know moving toward their partner hugging their partner um, doesn't know how to calm their partner down they don't they sleep in separate beds they interact only around what we call like you know logistical issues like the kids and appointments and the house but they don't actually interact around um, anything deeper than that and that is essentially will will produce a rage response in the other partner. And then they come to couples therapy and that that person, one person's raging and the other one looks just completely cool and collected and put together and like the most reasonable person in the world. And you don't see actually what's going on under the surface to produce that rage. So we always want to really unpack that and get to the bottom of that so that um, people can start making what we call pro-relationship moves in this book really moving toward each other rather than away from each other, right? And so I know we've talked a little bit about the panic grief. We've talked about rage. I, I was trying to think ahead of time. I'd love to have covered all of them, but but there was just so much. And, and you use the same system throughout. So anyone who's going to pick up your book is going to get, you know, the, 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 the comparison between the attachment styles, the tools, the hardware and software of each system, where it shows up in the brain. So, so I think we're, we're getting there. So if we were to wrap this all up, you know, and think about anything we haven't talked about yet, I, I wish we could go deep into each one, but it, it's, a, it's the same structure throughout. So I think how we've covered it, you've, you've outlined the, the seven systems that are in our brain that are hardwired into our brain that Jack Pansep came up with. And I always say Jack Pansep because I'm going to get messed up if I call him. <laughs> and then I'll, I'll go on a tangent. But, but anyway, from, from Dr. Pansep that he discovered this and it starts from the reptilian part of our brain, our oldest ancient part, and the emotions go all the way to our cortex and they're hardwired in there. And we've got to figure out how our attachment styles um, work with our partners and come up with systems to communicate better. How would you sum all of this up with what we should take away from this? 
in the conclusion of the book, I actually say, you know, if I were to sum up this whole book in one sentence, it would be that you have to be able to trust someone. And the way our world is going, we're moving further and further away from um, warm, secure human relationships. And yet we know from all of the research that we need those warm, secure relationships in just like we need oxygen, nutrition, sunlight, water. They're that critical to our well-being and to our survival on planet Earth. So the, the summary is understanding that there are certain basic needs that we all have, like that we are actually wired to connect with each other and that we um, are wired to care for other people. And we are also wired to need care from other people. And that is a, a fact that has been um, really denied in our society because our society has been going in the wrong direction with this for a long time by saying that people need to take care of themselves. It's about, you know, being in relationship, a healthy relationship means, you know, we're not codependent and we self-regulate, we take care of ourselves. We don't expect the other person to take care of us. And actually none of the research supports that. Um, intimate relationships are caregiving relationships. They always have been and they always will be um, because there's no reason to be in a relationship if you aren't um, doing something for the other person that they can't do for themselves, right? There's no reason to be together. So um, the, the, the book uh, and the trainings that I do and so forth are really about helping people learn very well how to care for each other and accept their basic need for care. And then we look at all of the ways that, all of the obstacles that can get in the way of that. But um, fundamentally, I think as a, um, as a species, we need to accept that that is the, how we're fundamentally wired and um, that's the way we're gonna move forward. Gabrielle, I wanna thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing your new book, Power Couples and sharing your new book. Tell me the t the whole title. So oh, I right. the power couple formula, the power couple formula for people who want to learn more and read your book is the best place to go to powercoupleseducation.com, your website. Yeah. Powercoupleseducation.com. The book also has a, its own page, which is the powercoupleformula.com. And um, there you can, on powercoupleseducation.com, you can um, sign up to uh, get notified when the book is out, which will be very soon. And as well as uh, we have courses uh, for sale for both for um, couples and for individuals who want to improve their relationship or do it better next time, as well as for um, therapists. We have trainings online for therapists as well. Um, in the power couple method. So lots to see there. Um, I also have a YouTube channel, a power couples education um, that that you can link to from that uh, from that website. 
So yeah, I would invite people to, to check all of that out. I'll be sure to put all the links in the show notes. And, you know, thank you so much. This is not the easiest topic to cover. It's complex. It's deep. It requires thought. And how you've organized it in your book is just very clear and concise. So um, the, the book really helped me as I was going through to, to understand Dr. Panksepp's work in a way that I definitely didn't before finding you. So thank you so much. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that, Andrea. That's great uh, feedback. And um, yeah, it's just been a pleasure to connect with you. I'm very excited to know that that you're out there uh, bringing this podcast to the world. And yeah, I just wish you all the best. You too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, bye. Some final thoughts. We opened up this episode with a quote from Dr. Pangsep that said, each emotional system is hierarchically arranged throughout much of the brain. And I think the image I put in the show notes and within our YouTube interview clearly shows these seven core emotions or our seven basic needs that are hardwired deep within our brainstem, bringing Dr. Pancept's quote to life in a way that we can now visualize these core emotions within the deepest, oldest part of our brain. When I first began to study Dr. Pancept's work, I printed these core emotions and I put them on my desk for me to glance at throughout my day, and I wondered how they were showing up for me on a day-to-day basis. As I'm reflecting on Gabrielle's book and our interview, I'm doing so from how I think these core emotions have shown up in my daily life, and for you, it will be different, but I'm hoping that at least I've started the ball rolling to have us all think about how to take an understanding of ourselves to a deeper level using Dr. Pancept's core emotions and Gabrielle's book as a map. Gabrielle was very thorough with her research that you'll see within each chapter. I can now see how these seven core emotions interact with the more evolved cognitive structures in the higher reaches of my brain. And this understanding can now help me to see how each emotion I'm feeling that's generated way deep down in the oldest part of my brain and shows up behind the actions I'm taking. You'll get a deeper understanding of why you feel a certain way and why you do the things you do with this book. You'll also get to look at why others close to you do the things they do as you begin to match Bowlby and Ainsworth's attachment theory to your most intimate relationships. So what did I notice with each of the action systems? Seeking, rage, fear, lust, care, panic, sadness, and play? Let's start with seeking. This core emotion is evident with my need to connect with others around the world, and this need is about getting more out of life with continual research and learning. While I can't jump on an airplane and travel to Australia, India, Sweden, or South Africa, at least not this week, and have conversations with curious minds like myself, I can write and release podcast episodes that travel around the world to you on my behalf. And this kind of helps with this action system and keeps me working and researching. 
I also need to seek others to learn from. And when the research becomes difficult, I remember what Dr. Zadina said on a recent episode where she would find articles that she was interested in first, that's her seeking system, and then read them over and over again, gaining more understanding each time. When you read Chapter 5 in Gabrielle's book, you can learn how secure seeking develops in relationships so you can support your partner with ways that each of you can continue to expand, learn, and grow together. That's what I learned about how I interact with the seeking system. What about you? Where do you notice this core emotion of seeking playing out in your life? And on to the next action system, rage and anger. Some people I've noticed get angry easily for different things. My oldest daughter doesn't like injustice. I don't like disorder. But the key is to notice what makes this emotion come out in you and know that it's hardwired deep in our brainstem so that when this emotion sets you off, that you find a strategy to help create more space between the stimulus, the thing that you don't like, and your response to it. I've noticed that meditation has helped me to be less reactive here. In Chapter 7 of Gabrielle's book, she covers the fear system. In Chapter 8, she covers the rage system. And she reminded us in our interview that we want to work towards not triggering rage and fear in our relationships. What about you? Where do you notice rage and anger coming up in your life? Do you have a strategy to bring some understanding that can help you to deactivate this emotion? Moving on to fear. This emotion is a powerful one to look at. Have you ever thought about your deepest, innermost fears? I remember a program I did years ago that asked us to look at what we were afraid of and to know our fears would help us to overcome them, or at least to help us move towards the idea of having no fear. I know exactly what I'm afraid of, and it's right there in front of me daily, and I sidestep around it most days, but I see it whether it's out of the corner of my eye or if I'm staring directly at it. Now, this isn't even going into subconscious fears and traumas like Dr. Bruce Perry's work. This is just looking at what we're consciously aware we're afraid of. What about you? Have you ever looked at this for yourself? Do you know your fears? I think once we can identify them, then life just becomes easier. There's no mystery with these fears. I don't talk about what I'm afraid of, giving them more energy, but I know exactly what they are, and just knowing this makes me feel I'm more powerful than these fears. I can step around them, and I sometimes jump over them when they come up, not letting them ever stop me from doing the things I want to do in life. Who doesn't want to be fearless? Taylor Swift says it nicely. She says, fearless is not the absence of fear. Fearless is living in spite of those things that scare you. Moving on to lust. I'm not going to leave this one out since everyone wants to talk about sex and it's an important part of our most intimate relationships. Gabrielle covers this topic in chapter 9 and 10 of her book and when I was reading these chapters, I was actually dying laughing because she made a comparison with sex to a sport that will identify her as a Canadian. I'm not going to tell you the sport. You'll have to read the book to see how she made this comparison. She does say that most problems within relationships are a lack of the care system and that they're not sexual in nature. 
When reading this chapter, I thought about how right she was that we have to have trust first here and the importance of repairing our relationships quickly and often so we don't trigger the rage, fear, and panic grief circuit. We've covered the speed of trust on past episodes with Dr. Stephen Covey, who says that trust is the glue to life. It's the one thing that affects everything else you're doing. Gabrielle mentioned this system requires care that she outlines as commitment, availability, relief, and empathy. While we all know this core emotion is important, I wonder what Dr. Pansep would say about other ways we can use this energy. If he were here living today, I'd ask him about Napoleon Hill's chapter on sex transmutation that we covered on episode 195, where Napoleon Hill, in his famous book, Think and Grow Rich, talks about how this powerful force can be transmuted or transferred from one form of energy to another, which is a way of using this force to reach higher levels of achievement. Moving on to care. Gabrielle covers this core emotion in chapter four of her book, explaining why caring feels so good with the release of oxytocin, the bonding hormone, and that when you administer oxytocin to couples, they make more eye contact, are more self-disclosing, they validate each other's feelings more, and they show a significant decrease in criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling, which was Gottman's four behaviors that predict divorce. Looking at this system makes me think about my household growing up. Not that I didn't feel loved, but this system was definitely turned down, as affections weren't openly discussed or shown. So it's interesting to see that I want this system dialed up now that I'm raising my own children and interacting with my husband, and this one is a work in progress for me. The key to understanding these core emotions is to think about how they show up in our life, gain a deeper level of self-awareness, and then find tools and strategies to improve how we show up in our relationships. This is exactly what Gabrielle wrote her book to accomplish. How does the core emotion of care show up for you? Are you able to easily show those close to you, who you love, that you care about them? If this doesn't come naturally to you, do you have a strategy in place to dial this emotion up? Moving into the panic grief response system. Gabrielle covered this system throughout our interview, explaining how it goes off when we're separated from those we love or care about. While she does suggest in our close relationships, we should always work on not triggering rage, fear, or panic and grief by being mindful of what sets these systems off in others, and working on keeping them in the off position. But knowing your attachment style and your partner's helps here if you're ever faced with panic grief, as it will shape the experiences you'll have. Gabrielle covers extensively how each action system deals with panic and grief. Do you know how you respond to panic and grief in your relationships? If you're securely attached, this system rarely goes off. If you're anxiously attached, you'll worry that someone won't be there for you consistently. If you're avoidant, you'll have lost touch with this unmet need for connection and security. Your attachment style will help you to understand yourself better, how quickly you'll be able to recover from a breakup, or even your ability to be apart from your partner without feeling panic. And the last emotion system is play. 
This is the emotion I spent the most time learning about when I was first introduced to Dr. Pangsep's work. Mark Robert Waldman, who I took a neuroscience certification course with, would have us thinking daily about how we'd incorporate play with our work to make it more enjoyable. When it comes to making neuroscience fun, this core emotion is vital. Or for students in the classroom in our schools, how can we make learning more fun for them? My family tells me from time to time, you're so serious, lighten up a bit. And I really do try, but I'm the one who makes sure homework is completed each night and that day-to-day life stays on track, so I leave this part to others who I think are better at it than I am. But who doesn't want to have more fun every day? I've been playing around on the podcast and working on having more fun with interviews, but I'm not the type who'll suddenly tell you a joke or something or break out a fancy wrestling move with my kids, which is what science would call rough and tumble play that Gabrielle says reflects millions of years of evolution. I've got some work to do here to add more fun and play into my day. But what about you? Do you have fun with your work? Do you think that play is only for children? Do you think that animals play? Gabrielle covers this core emotion in Chapter 11 with five ways we can add play into our relationships. The part I love the most about this chapter is that Gabrielle left this core emotion to the end of the book on purpose. Life is full of pressure and stresses, and play only works when it's initiated in the absence of acute or chronic stress. This is good to think about as it's important to be mindful of the stress levels of those around you. I also wanted to add Lucy Biven, the co-author of The Archaeology of Mind, who weighs in on the quote that I posted at the beginning of this episode. Before releasing this, I wondered if I had a solid grasp of the quote I chose to open up this episode with, so I emailed Lucy Biven who we interviewed on episode 270 at the start of this year. Here's as close to Dr. Pangsept as I could get to be sure we've got a handle of his seven core emotions. She wrote, As for the quote, the hierarchy that Jack wrote about was basically from bottom to top of the brain, from brainstem to the cortex. The hub of all seven emotional systems is situated in the upper brainstem. And in Jack's view, emotional arousal always generates affective consciousness or emotional feelings. The hierarchy lies in the fact that without emotional arousal or affective consciousness, no consciousness is possible. So the upper brainstem is most important in generating consciousness. It's the top of the hierarchy. So how do we know that the brainstem is all important? Tiny lesions, so parts of the upper brainstem, specifically the parabrachial nuclei and the paradactyl gray obliterate consciousness while quite large cortical lesions obliterate components of consciousness like sight, hearing, and memory, but no consciousness itself. If, for example, she says, my visual cortex were damaged, I would be blind, but I would know who I am, I would know who you are, and I would understand my relationship with my children and my grandchildren, and I would retain everything that I know about neuroscience. In short, nothing else would change. But if I had a bad stroke in my upper brainstem, 
I would become comatose and vegetative. Everything would be lost. The idea about the hierarchy from emotion to cognition is this. She says emotions evolved in order to solve life's problems. Some emotional responses are instinctive. For example, when we're frightened, we freeze and we might be overlooked by a predator. Others we learn. For example, we discover from experience where the predator frequents and we avoid those places. Since emotional arousal is a precondition for cognition, we think about things that arouse our emotions. For example, if I'm smart enough, I might be able to set a trap for the predatory animal, thereby solving my problem for good. So cognition expands and refines emotional problem solving. This is the emotion-cognition hierarchy. And Jack posited that in the emotion-motor hierarchy, emotions are primary because emotions are inherently linked to motor responses. She finishes by saying she's not sure if he ever expanded on this beyond the observation that electrical or pharmacological arousal of emotional systems generates motor responses like fear resulting in freezing or running away, depending on the strength of stimulation. And with that, I'll close out this episode and how to use Jack Pancept's seven core emotions to transform your relationships, your family, your career, and your life. And I hope you found this deep dive into Gabrielle's Power Couple Formula book to be as useful as I have. I hope you print the list of the seven core emotions and put them in front of you while you're working so that you can begin to think about how these emotions show up in your day-to-day life and how you can use this understanding to develop stronger, more resilient relationships at home, with your family, and in the workplace. Have a happy Easter weekend, and I'll see you next week. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com.